please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Eight to ten-year-olds are dismissed to their class, if you'd like to go there. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, those of you who are visiting us, welcome. We have a general pattern to go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians now, and today we come to a new chapter, and we'll go through, uh, Lord willing, the whole chapter this morning, and I think you'll see why I've chosen to go through the whole chapter instead of breaking it up. Uh, but I've entitled this message, Run to Win the Prize. Let's read 1 Corinthians 9, all the way through to the end, verse 27. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? The crop, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not. Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the ship. What then is my reward? That ending, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. From all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, 
I myself should be tried. Again, the title, Run to Win the Prize. Many of you know that we were in uh, Cambridge for a season on a sabbatical. I was doing some studying there. Uh, the church that we went to there was a great encouragement to us. It was a church called Eden Baptist Church. It didn't have the, the same length of history that some of the other faithful churches in Cambridge have. It didn't have around as long as St. Andrew's or Holy or Cambridge Presbyterian, but it's been uh, a great church in the city of Cambridge for a long time. A number of uh, university students at Cambridge University have been saved through the ministry of the people at Eden Baptist Church. Uh, before, we, before I went to Eden Baptist, I was talking to a uh, who uh, studied at Cambridge and became a Christian actually at Cambridge, and, and he said, oh, you're going to go to Eden Baptist. He said, that is a pastor's dream church. Job for a pastor, he was saying. Now, it helped that he was British. That's where he's from. Of course, he thought of it as a dream church. I say the same thing about you, by the way, to all of my friends. Uh, but he said, that's a dream church, uh, such a um, gospel-focused group of people, great leadership, but they've just done so much uh, for a long time there at Eden Baptist. So we went, and we were greatly encouraged by the ministry there at Eden Baptist. Pastor is in his uh, mid-50s, so he's, he's got some gas left in the tank. And uh, before we got there, we learned that he was actually going to be leaving the church. Now, why? would Julian Hardiman leave Eden Baptist Church? You want to know why Julian would leave a dream church? Well, you have to wait because I'm going to tell you at the end of the sermon. <laughs> but it relates to this passage. It re- Apostle Paul saying, follow my example. I am giving up, hold on to your rights. You become a Christian. You know that an idol is nothing. You know that eating meat sacrificed to idol in an idol's temple is nothing. You're not worshiping an idol. You know you serve the one true and living God, but you still want to go eat in those temples, and that troubles the conscience of your fellow brothers and sisters who were saved out of that environment. Well, maybe if he or she's eating there, maybe it's not so bad, and you trouble their conscience. So Paul's saying, in chapter 8, like we looked at last week, you need to make your decisions about what you're able to do based on the consciences of other people around you. Are you leading them into sin? Are you leading them to stumble? If you sin against them, you're sinning against Christ, he says in chapter 8. And then chapter 9 is one long chapter about Paul's example of how he lives with an others-centered mindset. And that's what chapter 9 is. So chapter 8, hey, what are you doing? You shouldn't be living this way. Chapter 9, consider how I'm living. And then at the end of chapter 9, which is why I'm doing the whole chapter at once, at the end of chapter 9, in the final verses, specifically that final paragraph, verses 24 to 27, he calls on the Corinthians to follow his example of living for the sake of others in this life. So run to win the prize. And as I've told you, Most of the chapter, verses 1 to 23, are Paul giving us his example, and then the final verses are him giving us an exhortation to live in a similar way. So, for the morning, two points, a lesson in running to win. First, we're going to see the example, Paul's other-centeredness in the race of life, and then again at the end, and I'll give you this heading again at the end, the exhortation, our other-centeredness in the race of life. Okay, so first, let's look at the example Verses 1 to 23, 
Paul's other-centeredness in the race of life. So he's going to show, as I've told you, all the ways that he gave up his rights and privileges for the sake of other people. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Which is what qualified you to be an apostle, one of the things that you'd seen Jesus as Lord. Paul saw him, see Acts 9 for that. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? So this apostle specifically was called to Corinth and worked among them, and they were saved because he brought the gospel to them. They're his workmanship. He was one of their apostles. If to others I'm not an apostle, so he hasn't gone everywhere. Other apostles went to other places. At least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are the proof of my apostleship, my seal, my official declaration that that I'm an apostle. Something happened to you because God sent me the apostle to you. You're the proof that I'm an apostle. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Now, something to know about apostles. They were sent by God himself to go and preach the gospel to people that needed the gospel, which was the whole world at this time. So they start going out and preaching the gospel. It was understood that they would get their income, their support by those that they were benefiting, those that they were serving. That was God's plan. So they had certain rights as an apostle. They had the right to eat and drink on someone else's dime. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, to take along in their apostolic work a believing wife? So Peter would travel with his wife to places and preach the gospel, Paul's saying, don't I have the same right? Now, Paul wasn't married, but Paul's saying, if I was married, don't I have the right to bring along my wife and to be supported financially as we're seeking to help people spiritually? These are all rhetorical questions. The answer being, of course you have that right. Of course we should pay you. Of course you should get supported by the people that you serve. He continues, Or, verse 6, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Is it just us that aren't supposed to receive support? And then he gives three examples of the obvious nature of work and then receiving support from that work. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? When you go and serve in the military, you go, you know, as you're training, you go to the, the cafeteria or the mess hall, whatever you people call it, that served in the military. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> when you go to that mess hall, they don't say, okay, that'll be 550. No, no, there's a certain provisions given to you. So it's obvious that you don't serve at your own expense. You're there to help people, so you should be cared for and supported. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? You get to benefit from the work that you're doing. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? I mean, th- these are all just obvious statements. And Paul's just using normal reason to kind of make his case. And then he pulls out the big guns. He uses the Bible to make his case. Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Is this just because I've provided some word pictures for you that make sense? Doesn't the law say the same? This is Paul's way of saying, now open your Bibles. I'll make my final point. Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, specifically Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. So when an ox is doing the work, you let him eat the grain. 
Don't muzzle the ox. Now, he's citing Deuteronomy 25, which talks about providing for people, providing for oxen even, providing for ones doing work or ones that are in need. That's Deuteronomy 25. So, Paul's using the Bible as an example to say, listen, if God says that there and he's concerned about certain people, even animals who are doing work, certain people who are in need, and we are the ones serving you and serving people the gospel, shouldn't we benefit from that by just having our needs provided for? The answer, again, being an obvious yes, you should benefit from that. But then he says something about Deuteronomy 25. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Did God write that just because he's so concerned about oxen? Well, we know God would be, but it's bigger than that. Verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others, other apostles, share this rightful claim on you, don't we even more? I mean, I was your apostle. If others have been helped by you and they didn't even do all the work that I did, see 1 Corinthians 15 for that explanation, Shouldn't I be able to and Barnabas be able to be cared for by you financially? Again, the answer being, of course. We literally bought a new microphone this week. (laughs) And they tested it out for 20 minutes this morning. Um, But we'll press on, okay? Hang in there. Be mentally strong. You can do it. We're in this together. Middle of verse 12. Paul's been laying out his argument, right? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul thought it could be an obstacle if I'm receiving money from you. I have the right to do it. Biblically, I have the right to do it, but I've chosen not to. I don't want to put an obstacle in your way. It's as if um, someone was maybe meeting with a, with a non-Christian and reading the Bible with them. Maybe you're, you're at Starbucks or in your living room or whatever, and, and you're trying to teach them the Bible, explain to them the gospel, uh, say, I want you to have life forevermore. And the Bible points to the way to have that life through Jesus Christ, who came to die for your sins, rose again to give you life. You simply must repent of your sins, acknowledge your sins before holy God, and believe in Him, and you will have life in His name. That's what the Gospel of John says. Do that. Please do that. I want you to know Christ. You do all that as you're reading the Bible at Starbucks with them, and then at the end, you're kind of packing up your Bible, and you say, now that'll be $20. That might cause them to go, wait, wait, what? Why exactly are you doing this? So Paul's saying, I I don't want there to be any obstacle. And he prided himself, not in a sinful way, prided himself, it was his great joy to present the gospel free of charge. And he had the right to receive the income because he was doing the work, but he wouldn't do it. So he's telling the Corinthians, I've set aside that right. Now remember the context of all of this, chapter 8. Stop making all of your decisions in the Christian life when you ju- just thinking about your own rights and privileges, consider other people. So Paul's using himself as the example here. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, 
but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Again, that's biblical. It's a biblical reality. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He said the Lord commanded that. And he's saying, I'm freely giving that up. I could make use of it, and it would not be a problem at all. But I'm giving it up. I'm laying it aside. Verse 15, but I've made use of none of, I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So I'm not tricky. You know, I'm not just saying all this and then saying, okay, now I'm going to start collecting, which he would have the right to do, but that's not why he's writing. I'm not writing these things to secure any provision from you. I'd rather die. And he kind of interrupts his thought and says, and no one can deprive me of my ground for boasting. I'd rather die than trip you up and for you to think I'm just in this for the money. I don't want anyone to deprive me of my ground for being thrilled about what I get to do. I get to offer the gospel, and I would do this free of charge, and I am doing it free of charge. I am so thrilled to offer the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Maybe you've Um, heard someone say this about their job. I love this job. I would do it for free. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. I would do this for free. I am doing it for free. I'm working to pay my own way. He doesn't have to, but he is. For if I preach, verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. So I don't necessarily just find this great commendation because I'm preaching the gospel. After all, for necessity is laid upon me, I'm supposed to preach the gospel. Now, we know that Paul is supposed to preach the gospel. Someone called him to preach the gospel. Who was that? God, Christ. In Acts 9, he told him, you're going to go and proclaim my name. So, Paul's saying, I have to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? Here's what I take joy in. Here's what motivates me, Paul says. That in preaching preaching the gospel, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So he has no grounds of boasting just because he preaches the gospel. After all, he's supposed to. He has to. Woe be to him if he doesn't. But... He also wants to preach the gospel and wants to preach it free of charge. He wants to offer it freely. So in summary, Paul's boast or what invigorates him is that he preaches the gospel freely. His passion is that he wants to preach the gospel and doesn't want anyone to think that there are any strings attached. I'm actually going to take my jacket off uh, because I think that could be part of the problem, Lane, okay? All right, so we'll do that. How Paul, as a Christian, as a Christian servant, preached the gospel freely so that he would show this is not about what I can get from it. I I don't want to be a stumbling block to you. I'm doing this so that you would see that I'm just here to serve you. That's what I take joy in. I'm not holding on to my rights. I don't want you to hold on to your rights as you think about your own Christian life. Live for the sake of other people. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, 
so that I might win more of them. So he's talking about how he's giving up certain things that he's able to do to win people. So he kind of shifts from from financial provision to now how he lives among the Jews as he's trying to preach the gospel to Jews, how he's going to live to those who are weak as he tries to preach the gospel to those who are weak, as he lives among those outside the law, maybe the Gentiles he's referring to, when he's trying to win them to Christ. Again, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. I've come not to say, this is my right, I can do whatever I want. No, I came to give up certain rights so that I could serve people, to win more of them. That's the purpose, to win people. Verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Now, what's he talking about here? Remember, the Jews thought thought of themselves as still being under all of the Old Testament law. So they were still doing sacrifices at this time. And Paul knows the sacrifices all pointed to Christ. He's the final sacrifice. Paul knows he didn't need to offer sacrifices anymore, but the Jews still would. So what would Paul do when he was with Jews, when he was trying to evangelize Jews? He would offer sacrifices. He would go to the temple with them to do that. Did he have to? No, but he did as a way of serving them. He didn't want to put a stumbling block in the way of his gospel message. Paul even had a young disciple named Timothy who was not circumcised. But when Paul and Timothy were going to go and preach the gospel to Jews, at some point, Paul probably had to have an uncomfortable conversation with Timothy. So, Timothy, we're going to share the gospel with the Jews and it could trip them up if you're not circumcised. So, (laughs) Timothy, I've laid aside my rights in a number of ways. It's time for you to lay aside some of your rights. And so, Timothy, and I believe Timothy willingly, (laughs) was circumcised as well. But that's an example of not wanting there to be anything in the way of your proclamation of Christ. He doesn't want these people to be stumbled in any way. And so he would be a servant to the Jews. He would serve the Jews when he preached the gospel to them. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, not saying he's he's not obeying the law of God in the scripture, but under the law of Christ. So he's not disobeying all of Moses' writings, all of Genesis through Deuteronomy, But he's understanding there are certain things he doesn't have to do anymore. Again, being being a Christian, Christ has fulfilled all those sacrifices, but he would would live like the Gentiles were living. He He wouldn't force the Gentiles to be circumcised, for example, like some of the Jews wanted to do. He wouldn't say, you've got to, in order to be a Christian, you, yes, have to have faith in Christ, and you also need to do what the Jews have always done, be circumcised. He wouldn't do that. He was outside the law in that way. He wasn't holding that over the Gentiles' heads. That I might win those outside the law. Again, that word win. He's wanting to win people. Doesn't want to put a stumbling block in their way. He wasn't telling the Gentiles when he would go preach the gospel to them, for example, that they've also got to offer animal sacrifices. He didn't tell them that. So he deals with Jews one way and Gentiles another way, and it's all for the sake of winning them. Again, no obstacles. 
in the way of his gospel presentation. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. Now, where have we heard the term weak before? Chapter 8. Remember the strong Corinthians in their mind? They weren't really strong. The ones who were knowledgeable, who prided themselves on their knowledge, we know that these idols aren't alive. We're not actually serving them when we eat in the idol's temple. It's just good for business to keep doing that. Our family will ostracize us if we don't keep eating in the idol's temple. And he's saying, what about the weak people? What about the weak brothers and sisters that you're tempting? So he's already rebuked them for not thinking of the weak. Here he now says to the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. Remember what he said in, at the end of chapter 8? Listen to these words. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. If they've got a problem with this meat sacrificed to idols and my eating in the temple, I won't do that anymore. Paul's looking out for the weak. And again, 1 Corinthians 9 isn't written so that you just see Paul and how wonderful he is. He is. He lays aside his rights. He looks a lot like his Lord, who gave up the glories of heaven to come to this earth and live under the curse. This isn't written just so you say, wow, Paul was amazing. We're getting to the final paragraph. You live the same way. Chapter 8, you live this way. Here's the principle, middle of verse 22. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some of them. So I live this way among the Jews, I live this way among the Gentiles, I live this way among the weak believers, so that some of them would be saved. Some of them are going to hear my gospel and respond to this, and I don't want to put anything in their way. I want to live in light of what could offend them. I want to be careful not to compromise not to hurt the gospel presentation. And we consider this. I mean, there are a number of ways that this could apply to us. If, if you have, a, let's say you've got Korean neighbors that move in near you and you've prayed for a long time, Lord, let me be a testimony of Christ in this neighborhood. Let me see people come to Christ through, uh, th- through the, you know, the testimony that, that we give in this neighborhood. And you've got some Korean people that move nearby. And so you strike up conversations and one day they invite you over to their house and you come to their house and you come to the front door and there's a bunch of shoes laying outside the door. And you think, oh no, I'm supposed to take my shoes off. When did I last change my socks? And you're going through all of that. Culturally, them doing that is a lot because of hygiene and there are other factors there. Some people do that because they believe that the, the body is a spiritual being and that the head is the most spiritual. And then as you get lower, like the feet, that's the least spiritual. And so it's a way of kind of keeping the house from that bad spirit kind of that's touching the ground, your feet. Now, you know that's not true. As a Christian, you know that. But let's say your Korean neighbors don't know that. They think that that's true. Here's what Paul would do. He wouldn't say, no, no, no. I don't need to take my shoes off. I'm walking right in there and I'm eating that food. Some Christians are like that. But Paul's like, I'll take off my shoes. I'll do that. Because there's something greater that I want to talk to them about. And I don't want to put a stumbling block in the way. And that's how Paul would live. So he's not wanting to offend someone that he's going to proclaim the gospel to. 
Listen, the gospel is an offensive message. You are in trouble with the holy God. You are born in rebellion against the holy God. And we can actually, if we looked at your life, we can point to all the rebellion against God. But there's good news. God loves to save sinners. So acknowledge your need of Him, acknowledge your rebellion toward Him, and He will save you. Now, that's a message different than the world preaches. The world preaches, you are awesome all the time. You are just wonderful. You're just, you're just the cat's meow. That's the, what the world preaches. The Bible doesn't say that. You're in trouble. But God is merciful. You need Christ's righteousness. Now, that's offensive, because the world thinks, I'm good enough. I mean, I'm not Hitler. I'm not mean to other people like that person is or that person. The world thinks they're good enough. So the gospel itself is offensive. Paul worked hard to not be offensive himself as he proclaimed an offensive gospel. The gospel doesn't need us to add offenses to it. It's offensive itself at the beginning of it. So don't be an offensive Christian as you're going to proclaim a gospel that's sometimes hard to swallow for people. So the gospel's offensive. Let it be. It's truth. It saves people if they believe in it. But don't put a stumbling block in their way. Don't be that Christian that holds onto their rights all the time. Serve people. Die to yourself. Consider what, what might keep them from giving you an audience. <clears throat> now, People have abused this statement, I become all things to all people so that I might save some. People have abused this and kind of participated in sin for the sake of the gospel. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, this group of people, they do that sinful activity over there, so I'm going to go do that, and then while I'm there, I'll preach the gospel of Jesus to them. That's not what this is arguing for. It's also not saying, I'm going to change the gospel message to try to make it more palatable to them. So, I'm going to be all things to all people. They don't, that, that group of people, they wouldn't want to hear about sin and unrighteousness and, and even sexual sin, and they're involved in all that. They wouldn't want to hear that. So, I'll just kind of sneak in the gospel and make it sound like, hey, do you want to live a fulfilled life? Oh, yeah, I'm in. I'll do it that way. Don't lie to them. Don't make up a different gospel. So it's not us changing the gospel. It's not us getting involved in sin with people for the sake of the gospel. That's not what it means to be all things to all people. It means that as you go to certain people, and there could be something culturally that would trip them up and not cause them to hear you, that you wouldn't do that. You won't do that. No, no. I don't want to do that. But it's not talking about changing the gospel message or compromising the gospel message at all. Jesus was the greatest picture of this. He came to serve. He would go and serve, and, and he would go and, and be in the house of sinners and tax collectors and not condone what they were doing, and then tell them things like, go and sin no more. Don't do this. Stop sinning. He, he would go to the woman at the well and accommodate himself to her. And then he would say things and indicate that he knew she was living wrongly and point that out to her. So this isn't compromising the gospel message, but it is 
being concerned that you don't put an unnecessary stumbling block in front of the people that you're seeking to bring Christ to. And then verse 23, why does he live this way? Why does he live with such a focus on other people? I mean, I mean, in real life, why would he work long and hard as a tent maker, dealing with leather, which would smell and was looked down upon? I mean, working with your hands was looked down upon in first century Corinth. Why would he go through all of that work, being so exhausted just to pay for his own meals? Why would he do all of that? Verse 23 is the reason. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share with them in its blessings. This is a great picture. It's not just I do it because I want to preach to them, but I also want to enjoy the blessings of the gospel with them. I want to be in heaven with them. I want to have a renewed life with them. I want to praise the Lord with them. They are rebels against our Lord. I want to preach the gospel so they come to know our Lord and we live as brothers and sisters forever. I give up all of these rights and privileges because I want that to happen. I want to share in the blessings with them. So here's the example, 23 verses of Paul's other-centeredness. And again, as I've said before, this reminds you a lot of someone, doesn't it? Listen to this. Jesus came to the earth and started healing people and started saying the kingdom of God is here. And all the Jews were like, yes, we're going to beat Rome finally. Yes, we win politically. And that's not what he was talking about. The kingdom of God is here, and he was going to transfer people from darkness to light. And his disciples started thinking, when the king comes, the friends with the king get all the benefits. And so they started arguing which one's the greatest, which one's going to sit closest to him in the kingdom, which one's going to be his right-hand person, which one's going to get all the accolades. So he would preach that he's going to die, and they would argue which one of us is greatest. That was a regular thing. And so in Mark 10, you get an interaction between James and John, and they get their mother involved. Which one's the greatest? Which one's going to sit, you know, next to Jesus in the kingdom? Jesus, we, we, we want you to do it this way. Here's a request we have from you. Just focused on themselves. A lot like the Corinthians were in 1 Corinthians 8. Focused on themselves and what they can get out of all this. Mark 10, 42. Jesus called them to him. Hey, guys come here for a second. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So worldly leaders are the ones who try to benefit from those under their care. Worldly leaders are the ones that use their people for their own gain, right? You guys have heard that, right? That's what the world does. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you, you guys want to be great? Maybe he's looking right at James and John there. You guys want to be great? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man himself, and remember, I've told you a lot, the Son of Man in Mark is talking about the victorious one. Even the victorious Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the victorious one would ultimately die for those that he was serving. The victorious conqueror would serve people. He didn't come to reap all of the benefits then. And he's telling his followers, you do the same thing. And then shortly after, the year shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, he called into service a man named Paul, who then started living this way when he was converted. He started thinking of serving other people, not being served by them, but serving them for the sake of Christ. And then Paul tells everyday Christians, which we are all, he says, you live the same way. This is the way we live. We live to serve other people, not to stand in their way, not to lord it over them, not to receive all all the blessings and benefits. We seek to serve them. This is why Paul did this. In a letter to the Galatians, listen to these words, so profound. Galatians 5.13, you, Galatian Christians, were called to freedom. You've been set free, brothers. No more sacrifices, no more slavery to sin. You were called to freedom, brothers. And then he says this, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're free to love. We're free to serve. We're free to be others-centered, is what Paul's saying. Paul's the example here. Jesus is the great example. Now let's look at the second part of the passage, the final paragraph. We've seen the example, Paul's others-centeredness. Now notice the exhortation. Our others-centeredness in the race of life. Our others-centeredness in the race of life. Look specifically at the second part of verse 24. So verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? And then here's, here's what he's going to say, but only one receives the prize. So here's why I just rehearsed all of this, guys. Here's why I'm giving you an example of a runner. So run that you may obtain it. So this is where Paul starts to get the focus off of himself and he starts pointing at them. I've given up certain rights. I've disciplined myself. I've aimed at something. So, so you run so that you may obtain it. So this, this isn't just a cute biography of Paul. What a guy. This is now you all be like me. Remember I told you this section, this whole section is from verses, or chapter 8 to chapter 11, beginning of chapter 11. Notice chapter 11, verse 1. Here's how Paul ends the section. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that summarizes Paul living with an others-centered view. So he's saying, now it's time for you to live this way. Now, a couple questions before we get to this final paragraph. What does it mean to run to win? Let's use what we've been studying to kind of understand what it means to run to win. Uh, see, a lot of times when we just kind of take verses, pluck them out of thin air, you know, kind of think, read our own thoughts into a passage, we think, oh, it's kind of living the Christian life. I would say it's more specific than that. In light of what we've been talking about in chapter 8 and chapter 9, running to win is living the Christian life in such a way that you will not stumble other Christians, but build them up in love. 
That, in light of what we've been looking at from Paul, is running to win. You're not causing other believers to stumble, but you're building them up in love. Again, see chapter 8. But then chapter 9 gives us some more detail here. Also, live in such a way that you will not stumble unbelievers, but seek to win them to Christ. That's running with intentionality. You know why you're here. You're here, we could summarize it in these two ways. You're here to build up the body in love, build up your brothers and sisters in love, and you're here to win the lost. That's running to win. That's what these two chapters would point as running to win. So what are you living for? What consumes your time? What consumes your mind? What are your goals? What are your daydreams? What do you want? Is it an earthly focus? Is it I want to build up my career so that I can have this and that? I want to have this. I want to get married so I can do this or that. Nothing wrong with enjoying the gifts that God has given us, but don't forget why we're here. We're here to run to win, to build up our brothers and sisters and to reach the lost with the gospel and not causing either of those groups to stumble because we're hanging on to our own rights and privileges and desires. Now, what's the prize? Run to win the prize. I would argue from verse 23, Paul, I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I may share with them in its blessings. I think part of the prize is winning people for eternity. Enjoying heaven with ones that you've communicated the gospel to, loved, brought to Christ, introduced to Christ. I think that's part of the prize. I think you could argue biblically God's re- God also rewards us for investing what He's given us. See the parable of the talents. He's given us certain abilities, all of us given spiritual gifts, where we can edify the body, and we've all been called to the Great Commission work of proclaiming the gospel. So we use what He's given us to benefit other people spiritually. I mean, summarize it in that way. Use what He's given us to benefit people spiritually. Christians, building them up in love, and also unbelievers introducing them to Christ and eternal life. That, there's, a, there's a reward for that type of living, and the Bible points to that. So what does it mean to run to win? Live in such a way that you build up the body, live in such a way that you bring the lost, the gospel. What does it mean to run to win and win a prize? Sharing in the blessings of salvation with your brothers and sisters and being rewarded for that type of running. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? And then the command, so run that you may obtain it. Win. Go out there and win. Go out there and aim for things. Aim for spiritual victories. Not all people are running to win. They're just meandering. School, work, family, vacation, sports, just walking around. Where are you going? Where are you aiming? Who are you aiming to help in the body? Who are you aiming to win? Who is lost? Paul saying, aim at something. Reminds us of Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem. I've got an appointment. I'm doing something. Again, Jesus going to see the woman at the well. Jews would go around Samaria. He was aiming because he had an appointment with someone. Zacchaeus, looking to find Jesus. Jesus came to Jericho to find Zacchaeus. He got there. He looked up in the tree. Zacchaeus. Of course he knew his name. 
He had a plan to meet Zacchaeus. Jesus aiming, Paul aiming. Christian, don't just wander aimlessly. Aim at something. Run to win. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Running to win is going to cost us something, right? They do it to receive a perishable wreath. I mean, there are Olympic athletes that are putting themselves on this strict diet for decades in order to win a gold medal. If they can not eat donuts for 20 years, we can do something to help benefit someone eternally. We can sacrifice and give up, right? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. It's going to die and go away. I was reading about the wreaths in Corinth. Oftentimes they were made of celery. All right. It dies. It gets gross and you throw it away. But they discipline themselves for years to get the celery. (laughs) We can give up some time, money, energy, resources for the sake of the gospel that has lasting effects and brings eternal rewards. So let's just keep things in perspective here. They do it for a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Verse 26, so I don't run aimlessly, Paul says. I don't box as one beating the air. I'm not just throwing punches and getting tired here. I'm aiming at someone. I'm aiming at a target. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So part of my self-control is just being godly as I proclaim the gospel, being godly as I seek to benefit my brothers and sisters. I don't want to preach them a message and then them look at my life and say, well, you yourself are disqualified. This doesn't make sense. I don't know about this gospel thing, this new life in Jesus thing. No, I'm going to discipline myself so that I myself won't be disqualified. Notice the intentional living here that Paul calls us to. Again, you see this in Jesus. You see him pointing his disciples to intentional living. He ascends and they're looking up and the angels are like, guys, he's coming back in the same way. Shoo, go. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Get at it. Paul here, don't live aimlessly. Live purposefully. Paul's going to finish the letter in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 by saying this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, and then this, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Imperishable reward. Keep abounding, keep working, and you'll receive that final reward. Your labor is not in vain. So I think I just want to wrap up by pointing you to some implications here, all right? Consider your life before the Lord. For two chapters, Paul's been talking about the way to live rightly before the Lord. Is there any way that your testimony has been compromised? Paul makes sure he's disciplining himself so that he would not be disqualified in preaching to others. Is there any way that your testimony is compromised? Confess that to the Lord. Repent of that. He forgives. Our God is good. He forgives. Is there any way that your testimony is compromised? And are you loving the Lord and loving others? Are you living with others in view? Or are you living just to see all that you can get from retirement, all that you can get from the time that you have, all that you can get from the resources that you've accumulated? Is that how you're living? Or are you living 
to spend on others, to spend for others, time, money, time, whatever it is. Are you living intentionally because your heart loves other people? See, when you become a Christian, God actually makes you someone who loves. You love God rightly and you love others rightly. So what's your life look like before the Lord? What's your love look like? And then consider your service to the body. Again, this comes up in chapter 8. Is there anybody that you can walk alongside? Is there, any, is there anyone that you could help build up because of love? Again, that's chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There's an expectation that when you're in the body of Christ, when you're a Christian, you would build others up. Who can you influence? Who can you read the Bible with? Who can you disciple? Who can you encourage? Who can you exhort? Who can you help be built up because you love them? And then consider your life before those who are lost. Are you praying regularly for people who are lost? Are you intentionally working to invite them to read the Bible, to meet with you, to come to church? Whatever it may be, are you seeking to put them in an environment where they can hear about the mercy of God for sinners? Because they are a sinner. You've been shown mercy, and you can introduce the sinner to a merciful God. You know what it's like to be them. You've been them. And God has offered life, prayer, intentional living, intentionally meeting people who are lost. Maybe even understanding the Bible better so you can answer questions, but, but, but putting action to, to this life, aiming to win people so that you can share with them in the blessings. Consider the neighbors you live by. Just pick the three or four you live by. Some of you live out in Williamson Valley, so you have to go a long way to pick the people. Pick some of the people. Think of the names, the faces. How great would it be if they were bowing before the throne with you, looking at you, looking at Christ, praising the Lord, enjoying forever together. That's what Paul wants. So your life before the Lord, your life in the body, and your life in living to bring the lost to Christ. This final paragraph gives us the exhortation to run in an other-centered way. Now, I told you before, I told you why Julian Hardiman is leaving Eden Baptist. <laughs> He's at the Dream Church. I mean, have you been to Cambridge? It's amazing. And such a sweet people with such a great reputation for the gospel. People are getting saved there. People are growing in Christ. Why would a guy with lots of life left leave? He's going to Madagascar, and he doesn't know the language. And when asked why he was leaving, he told someone, because there's such a great need there. And then his wife were planning to leave Eden Baptist, and there are plenty of gospel proclaimers in Cambridge, and they're going to leave to go to Madagascar, where he doesn't know the language yet, because there's such a great need there. Now, some of you might think, okay, Jesus is Jesus. Of course he lived that way. The Apostle Paul is the Apostle Paul. Of course he lived that way. This pastor you're telling me about, he's a pastor. He's supposed to live that way. I'm just an everyday Christian. I'll remind you of two things. The final paragraph in, verse 20, in, in chapter 9 is written so that the people of God follow Paul's example. Okay, so no more excuses there. 
But just to humor you, I'll give you an example of a non-pastor, a man named Dustin. Some of you might have known Dustin. He was one of the 19 firefighters that died in 2013. If you've been in Prescott for any time, you know that those 19 are precious to the people of Prescott. Dustin DeFord was a believer in Christ and one that perished in that great tragedy over near, um, what's the town? Thank you, Yarnell. If you go to see the memorial, how many of you have been on that memorial hike? Yeah, it's quite a thing. You go on that hike a few miles and then you kind of get to a lookout spot over the place where they died. But and you can go down further too. Um, but if you're on that hike, there, there are these rocks with kind of a, um, a little bio of each of the 19. And you kind of go along the hike and you read them. Um, and so we, we went on this hike, we read all of these bios and you come to Dustin DeFords and you read it. And when I think of 1 Corinthians 9 and aiming at something, I think this guy's a great picture. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't Jesus himself. But he was a Christian with the spirit of Jesus in him. Listen to what the memorial says. Quoting now. He was a man of God first and a firefighter firefighter second. But he did both with all his strength. Dustin decisively put his trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as a young boy. It became his life's passion to live for Jesus who died and rose again on his behalf. Dustin desired that all would know his Savior and wasn't afraid to share Jesus. He graduated from Bible college in 2010 and interned in northern Canada in spring of 2011. Landing a position on the Granite Mountain Hotshot crew was a dream come true, but his greatest joy was sharing the gospel of Christ with his co-workers. I read a book recently on work, and it said, God can raise up insurance salesmen. God can raise up firefighters. God can raise up teachers. But what the world needs are Christians who are teachers, Christians who are firefighters, people who want to bring the gospel of Christ to people. That's their one aim. That's why they run. I think Dustin DeFord is a great example of living purposefully, aiming at something for the glory of Christ, and I trust that he'll be rewarded. What a privilege to be loved, forgiven, and saved by Jesus Christ. What a privilege to be loved, forgiven by God the Father. What a privilege to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And what a privilege to be called into service for him. What a privilege to get to proclaim him. We're a privileged people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything that we have. I'd ask that you'd cause us to prize the gospel all the more, like Paul prizes it. Prize us to be grateful for what we have and then cause that love to go from our hearts, out our mouths to other people. Help us to consider one another in how we live this life. Help us to consider the lost in how we live this life. And Father, as we are faithful to you, 
we take you at your word that you'll reward us. Thank you for motivating us. Thank you for saving us and putting us into service. We pray together, collectively, for all of our efforts for the gospel. There are people that we are trying to introduce to Christ, the Savior, the only Savior. Their family members we're urging to repent. There are friends that we love, that we want to share in the blessings of the gospel with. Would you bless those works? Open our mouths, give us love as we proclaim your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.